<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to The Josh Hammer Show. So coming on soon is my good friend Saur Mari. He is launching a new publication today along with his two co-founders called Compact Magazines. We're going to bring on Sorab here momentarily and dive into what that publication is all about. But before then, the Russia-Ukraine story, guys, I mean, this is still the top story. I mean, I the news cycle moves so quickly these days that I can't even remember the last time that a topic like this had this kind of legs. And, you know, just to make an obvious point, it has legs because there's a, there's a freaking war going on in Eastern Europe and it's tragically not over yet gargantuan humanitarian refugee crisis. Millions of Ukrainians have fled their homes. Poland has, I think, single-handedly taken in like 2 million refugees or something like that. All the countries of the region are doing so. And as we said time and time again on this podcast, you know, this potentially could have been prevented, of course, if things like Ukrainian ascension to NATO were taken off the table and not just dangled loosely out there. But at the end of the day, this is Putin's invasion. and He is reckless and crazy for doing so. And this humanitarian crisis is ultimately his fault. At the same time, the nuance that I have tried to introduce and some of my friends have tried to introduce in their own kind of spheres of commentary is that people are frankly just losing their minds over this in a way that I think is frankly just uncalled for. So a few things over the weekend, this past weekend, that just kind of come immediately to mind here. So I, I hate to pick on him, but um, Niall Gardner, of, uh, he's at least formerly of the Heritage Foundation. He's a f- former kind of foreign policy aide to the great British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. He had a tweet this past weekend that I, I, I just frankly just almost rolled my eyes through the back of my head when I read. So he's tweeting here a link from The Telegraph, the British publication, about uh, no doubt horrible events there in, in Mariupol in Ukraine. But his commentary is, quote, Rush, this is Niall Garner tweeting. He says, quote, Russian barbarism. Today's Nazi Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union rolled into one. This evil must be defeated. You know, and Twitch, I said, well, let me know when the death toll reaches the tens of millions here, people. You know, until then, let's try to keep some perspective here. I mean, have people like this, are they even vaguely familiar with their World War II era history? Are they familiar with kind of the decade leading up to World War II? You know, Joseph Stalin fabricated a famine called that Ukrainians called the Holodomor in the early 1930s in Ukraine, where millions died. Now, there, were, there was a gargantuan refugee crisis in Eastern Europe right now where millions have had to flee their homes, and thousands of people have died, and every loss of innocent life is tragic. But let's try to keep some perspective here. This is not World War III, and Vladimir Putin is not Adolf Hitler. You know, whether it's these people on kind of the neoconservative faux right or the neoliberal liberal internationalist left, they have one paradigm for foreign affairs. They are always, always searching for the next Hitler. You know, we saw this in kind of the rush to war against Bashar al-Assad over the last decade, right? We kind of remember the whole kind of chemical weapons thing. And again, Bashar al-Assad is crazy. He is genocidal. He is nuts. Hundreds of thousands of people have died as a result of, of, of his war and all the other kind of warring Islamists clashing there in Syria over the past decade. It is 
horrible. But that doesn't mean that every single horrific humanitarian conflict is a World War era or a World War-esque scaled conflict demanding American intervention, demanding kind of allied Western intervention to kind of quash evil each and everywhere it happens. You know, along the similar lines, I, I, Vladimir Zelensky, who is still routinely kind of held up as just a true kind of Churchillian hero. You know, I saw some Republican staffers, Republican congressmen on the Hill are now calling for like a Zelensky bust in the Oval Office to be up there with like kind of the Churchill bust that some conservatives have historically wanted there in the Oval Office. But over the weekend, Zelensky, who is is Jewish, okay, this is a Jewish man who is leading Ukraine. He is talking here about how Ukrainians helped Jews during the Holocaust. Many Ukrainians are among the righteous among the nations. And he calls in the state of Israel, he says, quote, the people of Israel now have a choice to make. The criticism here is that Israel has tried to play the role of mediator. Um, Israel is one of the only countries in the world that has cordial relations with both Russia and Ukraine. And Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has been one of the leaders trying to kind of make a peace here. You know, we have a word for this, okay? This is chutzpah. This is pure chutzpah on behalf of Vladimir Zelensky. He is apparently completely historically blind to the fact that many of his compatriots, many of his former countrymen there in the Ukraine, were all too eager complicitors. They were all too eager to be complicit in the mass genocide of Jews in Ukraine, of course, in places like Babiar, one of the greatest mass deaths of the entire Holocaust, where thirty to 40,000 Jews were shot dead in a mass death here. So for him to talk about making Israel to choose as opposed to trying to pursue peace, when is it a bad thing to pursue peace? When is it a bad thing to use your position as one of the only countries that is able to actually do this to then condemn them for doing so as opposed to trying to kind of escalate in a massive conflict against a 6,000 nuclear weapon arsenal holding power like Russia? So crazy, crazy stuff on Vladimir Zelensky. I mean, I, I think a lot of the goodwill that he built up there over the past few weeks is starting to kind of fold away before our eyes. Again, that is not to say that Putin is good. He's a very bad man. But I think a lot of Zelensky's credibility is really starting to unravel here, guys. And I would just encourage the listeners to kind of open your eyes for what they really should be there for. But let's take a quick break on the other side. As promised, Sorab Amari. Stay with us. Welcome back. So as mentioned, we have my good friend, Saurabh Amari. He is the founder and editor of Compact Magazine, a brand new journal launching literally today. So Saurabh, you're joining the Josh Hammer Show on launch day. Thank you for doing so. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, my friend. Absolutely. So we're going to get into that in, in a little bit here, but I think before doing so, let's kind of set the table, so to speak. So you have been front and center. One may possibly say that I think you are perhaps the single figure most readily identifiable with, I think some might say, with the so-called new right. Um, some of your writings at First Things Magazine, other publications really kind of got this ball rolling a handful of years ago. So uh, for the folks who are listening and might not be as well equipped, what is the quote unquote new right as you see it? And how is it different from the older right that preceded it for the decades before that? Sure. I'm always a little bit um, worried about these kinds of terminological questions um, because these ideological categories aren't so neat, like what's new, what's old. But broadly speaking, I think the new right um, 
which is composed of many factions, many sub-factions. We can get into that. We can get really nerdy about this if we want. Um, and those factions don't all agree with each other, but broadly they are united by this sense that the existing conservative movement has a super massive black hole at the center of it where there should be a quest for communal well-being, that the end of politics as classically defined, going back to Greco-Roman thought, biblical thought, and then through the Western tradition, has been the quest for the common good, for the well-being and flourishing of a community. Um, and that should orient what political actors do. That's the new rights conviction. It's, but it's broadly um, born of this dissatisfaction with the existing conservative movement, which really emerged after World War II, um, that said that basically um, the goal of the right is merely to preserve individual rights against encroachments by government. Um, and, and also, I mean, I guess hawkism on foreign policy. Um, and then this kind of traditionalism was a third component of the old right. I'm describing the fusion, the old Meyer fusion, right? Yep. Um, a business libertarianism, foreign policy hawkism, and then cultural traditionalism. I won't go on much further because I want you to weigh in on this and, and with your own views, but what I came to conclude is that the traditional component of that three-legged stool was in many ways threatened by the business libertarian one, well, the hawkism too in its own way, but especially by the business libertarian one, because um, it's the set of um, cultural commitments, right? We want people to get married, what the traditionalists say. We want uh, people to attend uh, houses of worship. We want uh, people to have large families. At the same time, because of the libertarian commitment, though, they support economics that, that can often completely undermine that, whether that's, um, uh, you know, by supporting uh, low wages on which it's impossible to raise families, uh, you know, giving capital all the upper hand over labor since the 1960s and 70s gradually, but then very fast since then, such that, um, people don't have that sense of job and health security needed working class people to be able to form families, to be able to have children, to be able to have time for God in their lives. That's the tension. And so um, it's it's been playing out now. Again, like I said, on the new right, there are sub factions, right? You have national conservatives, political Catholics. Um, I would say a group that you might call raw populists, raw American populists. And others, and 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 there are tensions between these subgroups, um, but broadly speaking, they all converge on this sense of dissatisfaction with the politics that says politics has no aim. We, when we get power as the right, our goal is not to use that power, which is bizarre. Um, it, it's it seems absurd to me, actually, in retrospect. First of all, I, I'm personally not in love with the term new right. I mean, it's not like we have any other better contenders necessarily, but uh, obviously new right is perhaps new in the year 2021 or 2022, but it's not necessarily going to hold the test of time. It's kind of a dispositional 
attitudinal thing. But if I if I had to sum it up in one thing, I mean, I would kind of say it as recovering a sense of community, a sense of communitarian impulse, right? And, you know, we're going to get to it, but that's obviously what your new project, Compact Magazine, right in the title there is obviously getting at. But it's kind of funny to me. I mean, you mentioned Frank Meyer, right, who is the theorist who created so-called fusionism. He was kind of the leading intellect along with Buckley in kind of the early National Review days. And if you look back at the fusionism that he put out there, right, it was fusing together this laissez-faire economic libertarianism with a purely private form of social cultural traditionalism, whereby those kind of cultural tenets, you know, faith, family, and so forth, would be instilled from one generation to the other purely in the purportedly private confines of the home, right? But the, in the public sphere, of course, as you and I both know, and we've both written non-prolifically, in the, in, in the public sphere, the highest good was just this live and let live form of neutrality. But I, I, I mean, would you agree with me? And I think the answer is yes, obviously. But would you agree that over the decades after that, right, as it kind of got closer and closer to the end of the Cold War and obviously in kind of the war on terror era, the pursuit of values-neutral liberalism as an end unto itself ultimately amounted just to a one-way ratchet whereby more traditional folks like you and I just got totally screwed, right? Yes, yes. I mean, I, um, the ideal of value-neutral liberalism is almost a cruel joke now because we see that liberalism itself has a substantive vision and that substantive vision is very, very destructive of tradition, of community. Um, it's very good for a narrow elite, the owners of capital um, and the prof urban professionals who service them. This is the overclass, let's say, de depending on where you draw the line, the top one to 10%. Um, that controls our government um, or exerts a lot of power over our government that certainly is in charge of the commanding heights of the culture and controls most capital, not all capital. Um, for these people, this worked out well, right? Like we've created the world that they, that, that they would dream of. A, it was a world of um, fluidity in every level, fluidity at the level of culture, obviously. I mean, in terms of what it even means to be man, woman, you know, completely divorced from biology, but also fluidity in terms of labor, capital, and goods, which is the dream of their kind of borderless liberal utopia that, that they want. Um, and they are willing to enforce a non-neutral account of the good, of the good life over against people like you and me, but also I would say in many ways sometimes over against the older communitarian left, what's left of it is now, um, they are in the trenches with us. <laughs> uh, they find themselves banished in many ways. Um, so yeah, I mean, I have, I have no contention with what you just uh, let us set forward. And I, I remember you saying, you taking on uh, Meyer in a very astute way in your um, NatCon speech, which then became an uh, American conservative essay. So um, that, that essay was a really perfect statement with respect to where I stand on on Meyer's project. Yeah, no, look, I think you and I obviously are on the same page on this, which is one of many reasons why you're such a good friend. But I, I think back to your 2019 statement that you didn't just sign yourself. You obviously wrote it with a handful of others, the kind of, you know, the so-called trad manifesto, the against the dead consensus manifesto. So for the listeners who aren't familiar, this was March 2019, kind of um, as this ball starts really to kind of pick up steam and starts to roll. 
Sawyer was one, of, was one of the lead authors here, basically saying that we are not going back, that the Trump presidency was a meaningful shift as far as what it means to be right of center in America. And there's no way in hell that we are going to go back to the status quo that existed pre-2016. So let me ask you this. Um, your new project, which we're about to get to, obviously is yet another kind of salvo in the arsenal trying to prevent us going back to the dead consensus. I assume that's obviously part of the rationale for launching this new thing. But how worried are you? Uh, I mean, especially in kind of like what we see with Russia, Ukraine, and kind of the return of the hawks and the neocons and this neoliberal NGO archipelago cabal, you know, the whole the whole complex, right? Um, are, are, you, are you sitting here in March 2022? Like, are you really worried that this thing is going to come back? I think at the level of GOP people in power, I'm very, very worried. I'm very, very worried that um, they, they, they've somehow reset back to 2003 in some ways. Um, that's, a, that's the argument of, a, of my own essay, opening essay for, Com, for Compact, the new magazine. We'll get to that, I know, later. But um, GOP elites, it seems to me, have largely, with few exceptions of people you couldn't even call office holders, they are office seekers like uh, Joe Kent, up in Washington State, or um, my friend J.D. Vance at, uh, running for the Senate in Ohio. I think those are the only two I can think of who really stood out questioning the the blob, the uniparty blob, uh, and its drive toward a kind of mindless drive toward escalation that could be very dangerous for um, not just Europe, but even for us here in the United States. I mean, it's a really serious idea to try to confront Russia directly. Um, but other than those two, I think, unfortunately, I see a kind of everyone getting goaded again. So that worries me. But I think at the level of, of the, at the level of intellectuals, like people like you and me and others, you know, people are resisting it. And I think that's not everyone, not everyone. But I think um, at the level of intellectuals, I'm less worried. And then at the level of the base. Um, I'm really curious as to what's happening because I think none of the kind of material internal contradictions that made the GOP base so that left the GOP base so unhappy with the elite consensus, unhappy enough that they took a chance on a you know reality TV star slash real estate mogul um, as wild as as one Donald J. Trump. None of that has been resolved, right? The 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 a sense that that uh, your job is precarious somehow in a way that wasn't for earlier generations of Americans when there was a more communitarian economic um, frame post-war. I look at the fact that Tucker Carlson has like by far the highest ratings, right, of, of anyone on Fox, anyone on cable news, period. And I, I look at that as a very solid data point that I think the base, the viewers, you know, the people that live in the, in, in the River Valleys out in Missouri, Kansas, whatever, and not near the coast, that they don't want to go back either. But let's take it to a quick break here. On the other side, we're going to dive into Compact Magazine. That's Sorab's new publication launching today. So stay with us. We'll be right back.
So with all that table setting in order, what we really want to talk about today, of course, is the launch of your new publication, which is deeply exciting. You know, I, I, I've heard about this for, for a while now, and now it's finally here. So in your own words, you're the founder, you're the editor, Compact Magazine. What's it all about? Tell us about it. Yeah, Compact Magazine is something I co-founded with two others. Matthew Schmitz, formerly of First Things, spent a decade as senior editor of First Things, and a guy named Edwin Aponte, who uh, before starting Compact with us was the founder and editor of a, a journal called The Bellows. The Bellows is a, uh, a journal of the left. Um, Matthew and I, as you can imagine, is historically come from um, uh, from the right. I was a you know I began at the Wall Street Journal editorial pages, a kind of rising star of the neoconservative um, constellation, really back in those days, and spent most of my decade, most of my career at News Corp. Um, so why would we come together? Well, it's because we're both of the, both camps of the founders of this publication um, went through a process of disillusionment with the institutions and ideologies that that nurtured us. Um, you know, we saw the failures of um, neoconservatism, obviously, uh, the, the outcome of uh, De Democracy Export Inc. Um, was instability, ungoverned spaces, vast uh, mass migrations that destabilized Europe. Um, the traditionalism that Matthew, the traditionalist field that Matthew plowed, many admirable things about it, but it has that same problem of divorcing culture from material politics that we spoke about in the first half of the show, right? It's, it only has lamentation for the fact that people aren't getting married, people aren't going to church, without saying as much about, okay, but why is that happening? Could our political economy have any role in that, in creating people who are atomized and deracinated? And then Edwin has his own kind of disillusionment with the um, with the millennial left, right? Where when it came to COVID restrictions or when it came to the question of immigration, open borders, which up until not that long ago, the orthodox leftist line was that open borders are bad for workers. He suddenly met with, um, with opposition on his own side where he wasn't allowed to question, for example, some of the policies that the DSA types um, so fervently support. And so we decided to uh, to uh, a, create a journal that challenges the existing left and right, the mainstream left and right, because we see both of them really as different organs for the same overclass. They're slightly different on, on, on uh, culture. They sl take slightly different tones, but they really are both vehicles for that. And they both deserve to be challenged. We also found, and I, I know you've noticed this, Josh, that there is this bizarre um convergence happening you see it especially now on this ukraine question where people like you and me find ourselves in a way that's surreal if you told me a decade ago my eyes would have popped out of my their sockets we find ourselves uh, um uh, in agreement about a lot of issues having to do with uh, the security state foreign policy with someone like glenn greenwald who's a contributing editor of compact um, and so we wanted to institutionalize that convergence, right? There's something happening. You and I know someone who, 
uh, who won't be named, but let's say is in the Trump orbit, uh, very close to the Trump orbit, who told us, you know, I wish I could go back to myself 10 years ago and tell tell my younger self, Glenn Greenwald is right about, <laughs> about these wars. And um, so, yeah, I, we're in that same place, too. I think a lot of people are. And I think that, that that's there's something meaningful about that. And it's worthwhile to try to build a magazine of ideas around that convergence and hence the name compact it's it's it um, hints at an at an alliance not a you know a blood oath it's not it's not a, a mere contract but it's a it's a kind of form of solidarity across the old divides of left and right no, it's really helpful, obviously, for the listeners. It's funny you mentioned Glenn, Glenn Greenwald's because, you know, it was December 2020. I was actually I was in Costa Rica, of all places, and Glenn had just had this fantastic substack, something about big tech related. This was, you know, in the aftermath of what happened in the election, obviously. And I remember tweeting out, I was like, would love to congratulate, like, at Glenn Greenwald for this fantastic substack. But he blocked me like eight years ago over like Edward Stone and related stuff. <laughs> You know, um, and then obviously, you know, a mutual friend of ours, I think it was uh, Barry Weiss, actually, then sent to him and he unblocked me. So it, it is funny how like the new world, like we do find like strange allies, obviously. I mean, I remember just I, I still I'm sure profoundly disagree with Glenn Greenwald over many issues, but we're in a weird, weird place here. But I kind of want to follow up here because you mentioned that, that and the three founders that you outlined there yourself, you know, our mutual friend Matthew, of course, and Edwin kind of a combined disillusionment with the current status quo on both the left and the right. But I think some people uh, who are less maybe in the trenches as you and I are might hear that and they might say, oh, well, are, you know, is that what people like what like Glenn are doing? What, what Barry are doing? Some of these kind of quote unquote anti-woke liberals are doing, right? But you guys have an entirely different focus. I mean, this publication is not anti-woke liberalism. This publication is a criticism of, of liberalism. So what is kind of what ties together the disillusionment of the left and the right here? Is it, is it this frustration with the communitarian impulse or the lack thereof? That's a really, really good uh, question, Josh. What we emphatically are not are both that kind of anti-woke liberalism that is you know, can we just go back to whatever the consensus was in what, 2014, before, before the liberals went too woke? Um, nor are we emphatically as sort of, oh, you know, some of us come from the left, some of us come from the right, and we're going to try to find an, a point of agreement in the middle. That's not what unites us. What unites us is an emphasis on uh, on, on material reality as a fundamental shaper of our politics, which, which both wokeness and the, the fusionist old right kind of GOP consensus uh, would deny, right? So in, in their own ways, conservatives, we've talked about a lot, you know, just treat cultural phenomena as merely this sort of disembodied things. It just so happens that every large corporation now is supporting uh, wokeness, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, without wondering why, what purpose does that serve for corporate America to support that? They're not in, insane, they know their own material interests and yet and, and it seems like this is important to them. If it threatened them, their material interests, they wouldn't support it. Um, and a kind of, 
kind of response to to wokeism that just says you know uh, you know wokeism is arising we just need we can just discuss it we just need to defend um free speech as it existed you know on campus i don't know a few decades ago before this crazy stuff happened again that doesn't take into the account the fact that um wokeness arose out of the free speech consensus of the 60s and 70s so restoring that um uh consensus doesn't wouldn't necessarily we'd end up in the same place even if you were able to to restore it so in all of these cases our emphasis is primarily to look at cultural phenomena to look at covid for example as an experience that we just went through and now the liberals are very quick to try to forget about um and see, see who materially benefits from structuring society this way overturning you know um overturning how people interact such that some of us, depending on our position as consumers, get to show our faces. And some of us, given our position as workers, must remain sort of effaced, self-effaced and anonymized from society. Is there a material component to that? We suspect there is. And that's where we, that's where we want to converge. So it's not just sort of like, come on, guys, let's be bipartisan. Look, a lefty and a righty came together. <laughs> So we're not that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, so to connect it to the foreign policy part, because that's obviously front and center of everyone's mind these days. And, you know, your first piece for Compact is on the Russia-Ukraine situation is, uh, well, first of all, tell us about your first piece for the magazine. And second of all, is the way that that relates to the kind of the broader 35,000 foot view you're talking about here, I'm kind of just guessing, tell me if I'm wrong, but is the idea here that aggressive kind of foreign policy interventionism almost amounts to a de facto class war of sorts where kind of the NGO lobby, the contractors, the military complex, whatever, those are the people that are going to benefit the median American, the 18 year old down in Alabama or Kentucky might have to go overseas to die for someone's war. They're not going to benefit. Is that kind of the way that this relates? I think that that's part of it. I mean, in my piece, I argue that, um, that it is very strange that, um, we're dealing with a kind of rerun of 2003. How did that, how could that happen, right? How is it that 20 years after the disasters of the regime change wars after 9-11, when we could have, I mean, obviously we had to respond to 9-11, we could have responded much more intelligently than to get bogged down in these nation building projects and then to do it again to Libya and then to try to do it in Syria and create this radiating uh, vortexes of instability in the Middle East and North Africa. After all of that, how is it that we're back to rushing headlong into um, a potential confrontation with Russia, this vast Eurasian civilization um, that happens to have the world's largest nuclear arsenal? Well, we should, one answer to that is we, we definitely have a uniparty, an elite uniparty on foreign policy of people who um, never pay a price for their mistakes. They never learn anything and never... Um, remember anything either, it seems. And I, in my piece, I focus on, a, on the figure of, of, of Victoria Newland, who is now Under Secretary of State. It's amazing to me. Her career begins in the uh, Clinton administration, working under Strobe Talbot. Then she works for uh, under Cheney in the first Bush term. Then she works for uh, George W. Bush as, um, as ambassador to NATO. Then she's in the Obama administration as, as state spokeswoman and then as um, assistant secretary of state. And now is the only administration notice she skipped is the Trump administration. Now she's back uh, in the Biden administration spearheading 
um, by all accounts, is one of the more hawkish voices inside the administration. So that figure of Newland, someone who's like associated with every bad foreign policy decision of the uh, past 20 years, with Benghazi, by the way, I mean, she got a, 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 right. a senatorial knuckle wrapping over Benghazi, is back back in the game. And, and so that to me suggests a structural to us, a structural failure of democracy that the, 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 the her going from strength to strength is a sign that something is broken in the in the feedback loop between popular discontent with these wars and what elites actually do. Yeah, um, yeah the way that I there is that peculiar component too. Yeah, I mean they they, they you know they have this jobs sustaining NGO archipelago as you call it. It was a very nice term, and um, you know they they people in that social class, which is also our social class. Let's be honest, really don't bear nearly as much as the cost of escalating against Russia or the earlier wars. I cannot personally take credit for the term NGO archipelago. That was actually our mutual friend, Dave Raboy. Um, but, 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 but when I hear the Newland thing, I mean, what I think of, I, I think I put this in a column for the New York Post back when you were the op-ed editor there, actually. I, the way that I described it with the Biden administration was, you know, they're getting the band back together and the first band wasn't particularly good to begin with, right? I, I mean, they're, they're responsible for a whole lot of terrible stuff, but we're starting to kind of run out of time a little bit here. So let's go back to kind of Compact Magazine. So where can people find it? And furthermore, um, what are your kind of just ambitions for the project? Where do you kind of see this kind of fitting into the broader kind of way that our political discourse is shaping? I mean, for, for five to 10 years from now, where do you want people to think of Compact Magazine? Great question. So first of all, you can find it at www.compactmag.com dot com compactmag.com our ambitions really are to become a new atlantic a new institution and what are the characteristics of that we as a kind of editorial and business proposition we say to the reader look you are looking at people like uh uh on the right um you know Patrick Deneen or Adrian Vermeule or Josh Hammer, and you and you see them forming a kind of convergence um, with with um, left of center figures that you never thought a decade ago would come together. This is a new. This could be a new institution, a new journalistic institution. But so far, the, the these people have been just sort of working each on their own developing an audience, um, doing great journalism or commentary or what have you, without the kind of serious editorial guardrails and and values and, and production values of old world journalism, right? So what's what we're trying to do is combine that. There is this kind of substack element of, you know, uh, let a thousand flowers bloom, and we're definitely for that, um, but we also want to channel it into a lasting, enduring institution, um, and so that the that the ambition is that high, um, the goal is that high. Meanwhile, we're also just having a lot of fun, and it's. Um, I encourage your listeners to visit the site. It's a very beautiful site, uh, and um, you know we're very proud of the list of people we've assembled. You, there's no other publication where some of these names will find themselves next to each other in a in a masthead, and so. Um, that I think already makes it electric for us, the editors, 
and hopefully for readers who can who will hopefully subscribe. Yeah, I love the emphasis on aesthetic beauty, actually. And that's a very kind of, you know, Roger Scrutonian concept. That's not kind of an idea that I think a lot of conservatives have forgotten this idea of actually prioritizing beauty. But, um, you know, I, I know that I, for one, am deeply excited to check it out, strongly encourage the listeners to do so. But we'll have to pick up on these strands of thought at a later podcast. But thank you so much, Sora, for taking time out of launch day, no less, to join us here. Deeply grateful for you, my friend. Thank you, Josh. The idea here is that uh, traditionalist folks, folks who are are either more religious, who believe just in kind of more hierarchy, order, law and order, who believe in kind of strict border enforcement, who believe in kind of a more prudential trade policy that will not kind of just offshore the entirety of America's manufacturing base to China or other hostile actors, the folks who want a more humble or restrained foreign policy. And that's not to say an isolationist foreign policy. I mean, that's obviously idealistic and will never get off the ground running. But the, the folks who just in general want something a little more sober and humbler and less kind of wedded to kind of liberal dogma, whether it's kind of free market absolutism, whether it's kind of individual autonomy, maximalism. The the idea here is that conservatism has just been fundamentally neutered. It has been neutered and it has become synonymous in many ways with liberalism, with what you know some people on Twitter will call kind of right liberalism because it is liberalism purportedly oriented to right of center ends. That's kind of the critique of Frank Meyer, the fusionist theorist that Sorb and I were talking about earlier in the podcast here. But the idea here is that a, a greater thumb on the scale, a greater thumb on the political scale is affirmatively needed, whether it's on issues of political economy. Again, that's kind of getting into uh, trade policy and things of that nature, family policy, um, whether it's kind of a Hungary style kind of direct payment model. We've seen some intellectual momentum there over the past couple of years. Folks like Senator Hawley of Missouri, even Senator Romney of Utah, to his credit. Folks like that have tried to kind of get in the game as far as trying to get the government involved and kind of direct incentives for family formation. The idea here is just to use political power to foster community. I I think the old conservative movement talked a lot. It talked a big game about the idea of, quote unquote, ordered liberty. The leading citation here would be uh, Russell Kirk, the 1950s era scholar who himself, I think, was deeply influenced by Edmund Burke, one of my favorites. And ordered liberty, I think, is a nice term. The problem with ordered liberty as it's played out in practice over the past 50, 60 years is that it's frankly just erred way too much on the side of liberty and frankly way too much on the side of bizarre manifestations of liberty. Uh, You know, one of the things that kind of launched Sorab off going back to I think it was April or May of 2019 was uh, we, we there were kind of these spate of headlines about so-called drag queen story hours proliferating in public school libraries across America. And, you know, the infamous thing that set him off was David French at that time, I think still of National Review, now at the Dispatch, referring to drag queen story hours in public school libraries as a quote unquote blessing of liberty. And the idea here is because we live in a very free country that allows for all, all sorts of things in the public sphere, whether it's public Christianity, public drag queens, whatever. The point here is that that kind of distills, right? That that sums up quite neatly 
this idea of a post-war conservatism that really did just pursue this values neutrality as an end unto itself. And the idea here is just let it all play out, let the chips fall where they may. But, you know, folks like Sorab and I and a lot of our mutual friends, we look at the landscape, okay? We look at spiking opioid deaths all across the Rust Belt. We look at these decaying manufacturing towns, Detroit, Toledo, Ohio, Wisconsin, all over the entire Midwestern United States. We look at the way that our manufacturing base is now completely controlled by a deeply hostile power. We don't make things in the U.S. anymore. We don't make semiconductors. We don't make PPE, which we saw at the beginning of COVID. We see, nonetheless, in the Russia-Ukraine situation, and you know, a neocon, neoliberal kind of foreign policy uniparty cabal that joins at the hip to call for warmongering all over the world in a way that pays no heed whatsoever to the complete and utter failures of the moralistic regime change wars in the Middle East over the past 15, 20 years. And I think we're saying this, and we're, and we're, gonna, we're trying to hit a pause button here, and we're saying no, 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 no. A change of direction is sorely, sorely needed. So, look, on that note, you know, I wish my good friend Sorba Mari lots and lots of luck on his new project, Compact Magazine. And um, just really excited to kind of follow that. So, strongly encourage listeners to do so. But hope you enjoyed today's episode with Sorab. And we'll be right back here next week. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Josh Hammer Show. See you next time.